Chapter 3. The Financiers That night, as Easton walked home through the rain, he felt very depressed. It had been a very bad summer for most people, and he had not fared much better than the rest. A few weeks with one firm, a few days with another, then out of a job, and then on again for a month, perhaps, and then so on. William Easton was a man of medium height, about twenty-three years old, with fair hair and a moustache, and blue eyes. He wore a stand-up collar with a coloured tie, and his clothes, though shabby, were clean and neat. He was married. His wife was a young woman whose acquaintance he'd made when he happened to be employed with other painting, the outside of the house when she was in a general servant. They'd walked out for about fifteen months. Easton had been in no hurry to marry, because he knew that, taking good times with bad, his wages did not average a pound a week. At the end of that time, however, he found that he could not honourably delay longer. So they were married. And that was twelve months ago. As a single man, he'd never troubled much if he happened to be out of work. He'd always had enough to live on and pocket money beside. And now that he was married... It was different. The fear of being out haunted him all the time. He'd started with Russian Co. on the previous Monday, after having been idle for three weeks. And as the house where he was working had to be done right through, he had congratulated himself on having secured a job that would last until Christmas. But he now began to fear that what had befallen Jack Linden might also happen to himself at any time. He would have to be very careful not to offend Crass in any way, and he was afraid that the latter didn't like him very much as it was. Easter knew that Crass could get him the sack at any time and would not scruple to do so if he wanted to make room for some crony of his own. Crass was the coddy or foreman of the job. Considered as a workman, he had no very unusual abilities. He was, if anything, inferior to the majority of his fellow workmen. But although he had but little real ability, he pretended to know everything. And the vague references he was in the habit of making to tones and shades and harmony had so impressed Hunter that the latter had a high opinion of him as a workman. It was by pushing himself forward in this way and by judicious toadying to Hunter that Crass had managed to get himself put in charge of work. Although Crass did as little work as possible himself, he took care that others worked hard. Any man who failed to satisfy him in this respect, he reported to Hunter as being no good, or too slow for a funeral. The result was that the man was dispensed with at the end of the week, and the men knew this, and... Most of them feared the wily crass accordingly, though there were few of those known abilities who placed them on to a certain extent above the reach of his malice. Frank Owen was one of these. There were others who, by judicious ministration of pipefuls of tobacco and pints of beer, managed to keep in crass's good grace, and often retained their employment, he did, when better workmen were stood off. As he walked home to the rain thinking of these things, Easton realised it was not possible to foresee what a day or even an hour might bring forth. And by this time he'd arrived at his home, it was a small house, 
one of a long row of similar ones, and it contained altogether four rooms. The front door opened onto a passage about two foot six inches wide and ten feet in length, covered with oil cloth. At the end of the passage was a flight of stairs leading to the upper part of the house. The first door on the left led into the front sitting room, an apartment about nine feet square with a bay window. This room was very rarely used and was always very tidy and clean. The mantelpiece was of wood painted black and ornamented with jagged streaks of red and yellow, which was supposed to give it the appearance of marble. On the walls was a paper with a pale terracotta ground and a pattern consisting of large white roses with chocolate-coloured leaves and stalks. There was a small iron fender with fire irons to match and on the mantel shelf stood a clock in a polished wooden case, a pair of blue glass vases and some photographs in frames. The floor was covered with an oilcloth of a tile pattern in yellow and red and on the walls were two or three framed coloured prints such as are presented with Christmas numbers of illustrated papers. There was also a photograph of a group of Sunday school girls with their teachers, with the church for the background. In the centre of the room was a round deal table about three foot six inches across, with the legs stained red to look like mahogany. Against one wall was an old couch covered with faded cretonin, four chairs to match standing back to the wall in different parts of the room, and the table was covered with a red cloth with a yellow cruel work design in the centre, and in each of the four corners the edges being overcast in the same material. On the table were a lamp and a number of brightly bound books. Some of these things, as the couch and the chairs, Easton had bought second-hand and done up himself. The table, oilcloth, fender, hearthrug, etc., they had been obtained on the hire system and were not yet paid for. The windows were draped with white lace curtains and in the bay was a small bamboo table on which reposed a large holy Bible, cheaply but showily bound. If anyone had ever opened this book they would have found that its pages were as clean as the other things in the room and on the flyleaf might have been written the following inscription. To dear Ruth, from her loving friend, Mrs. Starvum, with the prayer that God's word may be her guide and that Jesus may be her very own saviour. October the 12th, 1900 and whatever. Mrs. Starvum was Ruth's former mistress, and this had been her parting gift when Ruth had left to get married. It was supposed to be a keepsake, but as Ruth never opened the book, and never willingly allowed her thoughts to dwell upon the scenes of which it reminded her, she had forgotten the existence of Mrs. Starvum almost as completely as that well-to-do and pious lady had forgotten hers. For Ruth, the memory of the time she spent in the house of her loving friend was the reverse of pleasant. It comprised a series of recollections of petty tyrannies, insults, and indignities, six years of crudely excessive work, beginning every morning two or three hours before the rest of the household was awake, and ceasing only when she went exhausted to bed late at night. She had been what is called a slavey, 
when if she'd been really a slave, her owner would have had some regard for her health and welfare. Her loving friend had had none. Mrs. Starvin's only thought had been to get out of Ruth the greatest possible amount of labour, and to give her as little as possible in return. When Ruth looked back upon that dreadful time, she saw it, as one might say, surrounded by a halo of religion. She never passed by a chapel or heard the name of God or the singing of a hymn without thinking of her former mistress. To have looked into this Bible would have reminded her of Mrs. Starvum, and that was one of the reasons why the book reposed unopened and unread, a mere ornament on the table in the bay window. The second door in the passage, near the foot of the stairs, led into the kitchen or living room. From here, another door led into the scullery. Upstairs were two bedrooms. As Easton entered the house, his wife met him in the passage and asked him not to make a noise, as the child had just gone to sleep. They kissed each other, and she helped him to remove his wet overcoat. Then they both went softly into the kitchen. This room was about the same size as the sitting room. At one end was a small range with an oven and a boiler, and a high mantelpiece painted black. On the mantel-shelf was a small round alarm clock and some brightly polished tin canisters. At the other end of the room, facing the fireplace, was a small dresser, on the shelves of which were neatly arranged a number of plates and dishes. The walls were papered with oak paper, and on one wall, between two coloured almanacs, hung a tin lamp with a reflector behind the light. In the middle of the room was an oblong deal table, table with white tablecloth upon which the tea things were already set. There were four kitchen chairs, two of which were placed close to the table. Overhead and across the room, about eighteen inches down from the ceiling, were stretched several cords upon which were drying a number of linen or calico undergarments, a coloured shirt, and Easton's white apron and jacket. On the back of a chair at one side of the fire, more clothes were drying, and at the other side of the floor was a wicker cradle which a baby was sleeping. Nearby stood a chair with a towel hung on the back, arranged so as to shade the infant's face from the light of the lamp. An air of homely comfort pervaded the room. An atmosphere was warm, and the fire blazed cheerfully over the whitened hearth. They walked softly over, and stood by the candle-side looking at the child. As they looked at the baby, it kept moving uneasily in its sleep. Its face was very flushed, and its eyes were moving under the half-closed lids. Every now and again, its lips were drawn back slightly, showing part of the gums, and presently it began to whimper, drawing up its knees as if in pain. "'He seems to have something wrong with him,' said Easton. "'I think it's his teeth,' replied the mother. "'He's been very restless all day. "'He's always awake nearly all last night.' "'Perhaps he's hungry.' "'No, it can't be that. "'He's had the best part of an egg this morning, "'and I've nursed him several times today. "'And then there's dinner time. "'He had a whole saucer full of fried potatoes "'with little bits of bacon in it.' "'Again the infant.' whimpered and twisted in its sleep, its lips drawn back showing the gums, its knees pressed closely to its body, the little fists clenched, and the face flushed. 
Then after a few seconds it became placid. The mouth resumed its usual shape, the limbs relaxed, and the child slumbered peacefully. Don't you don't you think he's getting thin? asked Easton. It may be fancy, but it doesn't seem to me to be as big now as he was three months ago. No, no, he's not quite so fat, said Ruth. It's his teeth that's wearing him out. He don't hardly get no rest at all with them. They continued looking at him a little longer. Ruth thought he was a very beautiful child, and he would be eight months old on Sunday. They were sorry they could do nothing to ease his pain, but they consoled themselves with the reflection that he would be all right once the teeth were through. Well, let's have some tea then, said Easton at last. While he removed his wet boots and socks and placed them in front of the fire to dry and put on dry socks and a pair of slippers in their stead, Ruth half-filled a tea tin basin with hot water from the boiler and gave it to him, and he then went into the scullery, added some cold water, and began to wash the paint off his hands. This done, he returned to the kitchen and sat down at the table. One... "'I couldn't think what to give you to eat tonight,' said Ruth, as she poured out the tea. "'I've had no money left, and there wasn't nothing in the house except bread and butter and that piece of cheese. "'So, well, I cut some bread and butter, and I put some thin slices of cheese on it, "'and I've toasted it on a plate in front of the fire. "'I hope you'll like it. It was the best I could do.' "'Oh, that's all right. Smells very nice anyway. I'm very hungry.' As they were taking their tea, Easton told his wife about Lyndon's affair and his apprehensions as to what might befall himself. They were both very indignant and sorry for poor old Lyndon, but their sympathy for him was almost forgotten in their fears and for their own immediate future. They remained at the table in silence for some time and then asked, "'How much uh, rent do we owe now?' asked Eden. Four weeks. I promised the collector the last time he called that we paid two weeks next Monday. He was quite nasty about it. Well, I suppose you'll have to pay it, that's all, said Easton. How much money will you have tomorrow? asked Ruth. He began to reckon up his time. He started on Monday. Today was Friday. That's five days from seven till five. That's half an hour for breakfast and an hour for dinner. Eight and a half hours a day. That's 42 hours and a half. At sevenpence an hour, that came to one pound four and ninepence halfpenny. Well, you know, I only started on Monday, he said, so there's no back pay to come, and tomorrow goes into next week. Yes, I know, replied Ruth. If we pay the two weeks' rent, well, that will leave us um, 12 shillings to live on. But we won't be able to keep all that, said Ruth, because, well, there are other things to pay. What other things? Well, we owe the baker eight shillings for the bread that he let us have while you were not working, and then there's about 12 shillings owing for groceries. We'll have to pay them something on account, and then we'll want some more coal, there's only about a shovelful left. 
Wait a minute, said Easton. The best way is to write out a list of everything we owe, and then we'll know exactly where we are. You get me a piece of paper and tell me what to write, and then we'll see what it all comes down to. Do you mean everything we owe, or everything we must pay tomorrow? Well, I think we'd better make a list out of all what we owe first. While they were talking, the baby was sleeping restlessly, occasionally uttering plaintive little cries. The mother now went and knelt at the side of the cradle. She gently rocked with one hand, patting the infant with the other. "'Except the furniture people, the biggest thing that we owe is the rent,' she said, when Easton was ready to begin. "'Seems to me,' he said, as, after having cleared a space on the table and arranged the paper, he began to sharpen his pencil and his table knife, that you don't manage things as well as you might. If you was to make out a list of the things, just the things that you must have before you went out on a Saturday, I think you'd find the money would go much further. Instead of doing what you just take your money in your hand without knowing exactly what you're going to do with it. And then when you come back, it's all gone and there's next to nothing to show for it. His wife made no reply, and her head was bent down over the child. Well, let's see, said husband. First of all, there's the uh, there's the rent. How much should you say we owe? Four weeks. That's the three weeks you were out, and this week. Hmm. Well, four sixes is twenty-four. That's one pound four, said Easton, and he wrote it down. Next. Well, there's the grocer, twelve shillings. Easton looked up in astonishment. Twelve shillings? Why didn't you tell me the only other day that you'd paid up all, all that we'd owed for groceries, hadn't you? Well, don't you remember that we owed thirty-five shillings last spring? Well, I've been paying that bit by bit all summer. I paid the last of it the week you finished your last job. And then you were out three weeks, that's up till last Saturday. And as we had nothing in hand... I had to get what we wanted without paying for it. But do you mean to say it cost us three shillings a week for tea and sugar and butter? Well, not only for them. There's been bacon and eggs and cheese and, and other things. The man was beginning to become impatient. Well, he said, what else? Well, we owe the baker eight shillings. We did owe nearly a pound, but I've been paying it off a little at a time. That was added to the list. And then there's the milkman. Now, I've not paid him for four weeks. He hasn't sent a bill yet, but you can reckon it up. We have uh, two pennyworth a day. Yeah, well, that's uh, four and eight, said Easton, writing it down. Anything else? Well, there's... Um, one and seven to the greengrocers for potatoes and cabbage and paraffin oil. Right. Anything else? Well, we owe the butcher two and sevenpence. Why? Well, we haven't had any meat for a long time, said Easton. When was it? Uh, it was three weeks ago. Don't you remember? Small leg of button. Oh, yeah. He added the item. And then there's the instalments for the furniture and the oilcloth, and that's 12 shillings. The letter came from them today. 
and there's something else. She took three letters from the pocket of her dress and handed them to him. They all came today. I didn't show them to you before as I... Well, I didn't want to upset you before you had your tea. Easton drew the first letter from his envelope. Corporation of Mugsborough. General District and Special Rates. Final Notice. Dear Mr. W. Easton, I have to remind you that the amounts due from you as under in respect of the above rates has not been paid, and I request you that you will forward the same within 14 days from this date. You are hereby informed that after this notice no further call will be made or intimation given before legal proceedings are taken to enforce the payment. By order of the Council, James Lee, Collector Number 2 District. District rate, 13 shillings and 11 pence. Special rate, 10 shillings and tuppence. Total, one pound, four shillings and a penny. The second communication was dated from the office of the Assistant Overseer of the Poor, and it was a final notice and was worded in almost exactly the same way as the other, the principal difference being that it was by order of the overseers instead of the council, and it demanded the sum of one pound, one shilling and fivepence halfpenny for poor rate within 14 days, and threatened legal proceedings in default. Easton laid this down and began to read the third letter. J. Diddlem and Co. Limited, Complete House Furnishers, Quality Street, Mugsborough. Mr. W. Easton, Sir, we have to remind you that three monthly payments of four shillings each, that's twelve shillings in all, became due on the first of this month, and we must request you to let us have this amount by return of post. Under the terms of your agreement, you guaranteed that the money should be paid on the Saturday of every fourth week. To prevent unpleasantness, we must request you, for the future, to forward the full amount punctually upon that day. Yours truly, J. Diddlem & Co. Limited. He read these communications several times in silence, and finally, with an oath, threw them down on a table. How much do we owe for the oilcloth and furniture, he asked. I don't know exactly. It was seven pound odd, and we've had the things about six months. We paid one pound down and three or four instalments. I'll get you the card if you like. No, never mind. You say we've paid one pound twelve, so we still owe about six pounds. He added that amount to the list. Well... I think it's a great pity we ever had these things at all, he said peevishly. It would have been much better to have gone without till we could pay cash for them. But you would have your way, of course. And now we have this bloody debt dragging us on for years. Before the damn stuff is paid for, we'll all be worn out. The woman didn't reply at once. She was bending down over the cradle, arranging the coverings with the restless movements of the child had disordered. She was crying silently, unnoticed by her husband. 
For the months past, in fact, ever since the child was born, she'd been existing without sufficient food. If Easton was unemployed, they had to stint themselves so as to avoid getting further into debt than was absolutely necessary. And when he was working, they had to go short in order to pay what they owed. But of what there was, Easton himself, without knowing it, always had the greater share. If he was at work, she would pack into his dinner basket overnight the best that there was in the house. When he was out at work, she often pretended, as she gave him his meals, that she'd had hers while he was out. And all this time, the baby was draining her life away, and her work was never done. She felt very weak and weary as she crouched there, crying furtively, and trying not to let him see. At last she said, without looking round, "'You know quite well that you were just as much in favour of getting them as I was. If we hadn't got the oilcloth, there would have been illness in the house because of the way the wind used to come up through the floorboards. Even now, of a windy day, the oilcloth moves up and down.' "'Yeah, well, I'm sure I don't know,' said Easton as he looked alternatively at the list of debts and the three letters. "'I give you nearly every farming I earn. I've never interfered about anything, because I think, well, it's your part to attend to the house, but it seems to me you don't manage things properly.' The woman suddenly burst into a passion of weeping, laying her head on the seat of the chair that was standing near the cradle. Easton started up in surprise. "'Why?' "'What's the matter?' he said. Then as he looked down upon the quivering form of the sobbing woman, he was ashamed. He knelt down by her, embracing her and apologising, protesting that he had not meant to hurt her like that. "'I always do the best I can with the money,' Ruth sobbed. "'I never spend a farming on myself, and you don't seem to understand how hard it is. I don't care nothing about having to go without things myself, but... I can't bear it when you speak to me like you do lately. You've been blaming me for everything. You used to speak to me not like that at all. That before, oh, oh, I'm so tired. I'm so tired. I wish I could lie down somewhere and sleep and never wake up any more. She turned away from him, half kneeling and half sitting on the floor, her arms folded on the seat of the chair and her head resting upon them. She was crying in a heartbroken, helpless way. "'Well, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I spoke to you like that,' said Easton awkwardly. "'I didn't mean what I said. Yeah, it's all my fault. I leave things too much to you, and it's more than you can be expected to manage. I'll, I'll help you to, to think things out in future. Uh, only forgive me. I'm, I'm, I'm very sorry. I, I do know you try your best.' She suffered him to draw her to him laying her head on his shoulder, and he kissed and fondled her, protesting that he would rather be poor and hungry with her than share riches with anyone else. The child in the cradle, who had been twisting and turning restlessly all this time, now began to cry loudly. The mother took it from the cradle and began to hush and soothe it, walking about the room and rocking it in her arms. The child, however, continued to scream, so she sat down to nurse it. For a little while the infant refused to drink, struggling and kicking in its mother's arms, and then for a few minutes it was quiet, taking the milk 
in a half-hearted, fretful way. Then it began again to scream and twist and struggle. They both looked at it in a helpless manner. Whatever could the matter be? It must be those teeth. Then suddenly, as they were soothing and patting him, the child vomited all over its own and its mother's clothing a mass of undigested food. Mingled with the curdled milk were fragments of egg, little bits of bacon, bread, particles of potato. Having rid his stomach of this unnatural burden, the unfortunate baby began to cry afresh, his face very pale, his lips colourless, and his eyes red-rimmed and running with water. Easton walked about with him, while Ruth cleaned up the mess and got ready some fresh clothing. They both agreed that it was the coming teeth which had upset the poor child's digestion. It would be a good job when they were through. This work finished, Easton, who was still convinced in his own mind that with the aid of a little common sense and judicious management, their affairs might be arranged more satisfactorily. And he said, Well, we may as well make a list of all the things that we must pay for and buy tomorrow. The great thing is to think out exactly what you're going to do before you spend anything. That saves you from getting things you don't really need, and it prevents you from forgetting the things that you must have. Now, first of all, the rent. Two weeks. That's twelve shillings. He took a fresh piece of paper and wrote this item down. Now, what else is there that we must pay or buy tomorrow? Well, you know, I promised the baker and the grocer that I would pay them directly if you've got a job. And if I don't keep my word, well, they wouldn't let us have anything else another time, so you'd better put down two shillings each for them. Yeah, I've got that, said Easton. There's two and seven for the butcher. We have to pay that. I'm ashamed to pass the shop because when I got the meat, I promised to pay him the next week, and it's, well, it's nearly three weeks ago now. OK, I put that one down. What else? As a hundred of coal, that's one and six. Next. Well, it's the instalment for the furniture and the floor cloth, that's twelve shillings. Next. We owe the milkman four weeks, and we'd better pay one week on account, that's uh, one and two. Next. Well, there's the greengrocer, uh, one shilling on account. Anything else? Well, we shall want a piece of meat of some kind. We've had none for nearly three weeks. You better say one and six for that. Yeah, OK, that's down. Uh, one and nine for bread. That's uh, one loaf a day. Yeah, well, I've got two shillings down for bread already, said Easton. Yes, I know, dear, but that's to go towards paying off what we owe. And what you've down for the grocers and milkman's the same. Oh, for go on, for Christ's sake, let's get it done, said Easton irritably. Well, we can't say less than three shillings for groceries. Easton looked carefully at his list. This time he felt sure that the item was already down. But finding he was mistaken, he said nothing and added the amount. OK, I've got that now. What else? Uh, there's milk, one and two. Next, uh, vegetables, uh, eightpence. 
Yeah. Paraffin oil and uh, firewood. That's uh, sixpence. Again, the financier scrutinised the list. He was positive that that was down already. However, he couldn't find it. So the sixpence was added to the column of figures. And then there's uh, your boots. You can't go about with them old things in this weather much longer. They won't stand mending again. Remember the man said that they were not worth it when you had to patch putting on a few weeks ago. Yeah, yeah, I was thinking of buying a new pair tomorrow. My socks was wet through tonight. If it's raining some morning when I'm going out, I've got to work all day with wet feet and I'll be laid up. At that second-hand shop down in the high street, I saw when I was out in the afternoon a very good pair. They were just your size. Two shillings. Easton didn't reply at once. He did not much fancy wearing the cast-off boots of some stranger who, for all he knew, might have suffered from some disease. But then remembering that the old ones were literally falling off his feet, he realised that he had practically no choice. Well... Yeah, if you're quite sure they'll fit, you better get them. It's better to do that than for me to catch cold and be laid up for God knows how long, eh? So the two shillings were added to the list. Is there anything else? How much does all that come to now? said Ruth. Easton added it all up. When he had finished, he remained staring at the figures in consternation for quite a long time without speaking. Jesus Christ. What's it come to? asked Ruth. Forty-four and tenpence. I knew we wouldn't have enough, said Ruth wearily. Now, if you think I manage so badly, perhaps you can tell me which of those things we ought to leave out. Well, we'd be doing all right if it wasn't for those debts, said Easton doggedly. When we're not working, we must either get into debt or starve, then. Easton made no answer. And what are we going to do about the rates? asked Ruth. Well, I'm sure I don't know. There's nothing left to pawn except my black coat and vest. Well, you might get something for that. You'll have to be paid somehow, said Ruth, or you'll be taken off to jail for a month. The same with Mrs Newman's husband last winter. Well... You better take the coat and vest and see what you can get on them tomorrow, then. Yes, said Ruth, and there's that brown silk dress of mine, you know, the one I wore when we were married. I might get something on that, because, well, we won't get enough on the coat and the vest. I don't like parting with the dress, although I never wore it again, but, well, we'll be sure to get able to get it out again, won't we? We won't be able to do that. Go, cool, said Easton. They remained silent for some times, Easton staring at the list of debts and the letters. She was wondering if he still ought, thought that she managed badly, and what he would do about it, and she knew that she had always done her best. At last, she said wistfully, trying hard to speak plainly, for there seemed to be a lump in her throat. Uh, what about tomorrow? Would you like to spend the money yourself, or shall I manage it like, like I've done before? Or, or would you tell me what to do? Oh, I don't know, dear, said Easton sheepishly. 
I think you better do as you think best. Oh, OK, I'll, I'll manage all right, dear, you see, replied Ruth, who seemed to think it's a sort of honour to be allowed to starve herself and to wear shabby clothes. The baby, who had been for some time quietly sitting upon its mother's lap, looked wonderingly at the fire. His teeth appeared to be troubling him less as he got rid of the eggs and bacon and tomatoes, and he now began to doze and nod, which Easton perceived, suggesting that the infant should not be allowed to go to sleep with an empty stomach, because it would probably wake him hungry in the middle of the night. He therefore woke him up as much as possible, and mashed a little of the bread and toasted cheese with a little warm milk. Then, taking the baby from Ruth, he began to try to induce it to eat. As soon, however, as the child understood the object, it began to scream at the top of its voice, closing its lips firmly and turning its head rapidly from side to side every time the spoon approached its mouth. It made such a dreadful noise that Easton at last gave in. He began to walk around the room with it, and presently the child sobbed itself to sleep. After putting the baby into its cradle, Ruth set about preparing Easton's breakfast and packing it into his basket. This didn't take very long, there being only bread and butter, or, to be more correct, margarine. Then she poured what tea was left into a small teapot and a saucepan and placed it on top of the oven, but away from the fire. She cut two more slices of bread, spread on them all the margarine that was left, and put them on a plate on the table, covering them with a saucer to prevent them from getting hard and dry during the night. Near the plate she placed a clean cup and the saucer and the milk and the sugar. In the morning Easton would light the fire, warm up the tea in the saucepan, so as to have a cup of tea before going out. If Ruth was awake and he was not too pressed for time, he generally took a cup of tea to her in bed. Nothing now remained to be done but to put some coal and wood ready in the fender so that there would be no unnecessary delay in the morning. The baby was still sleeping, and Ruth didn't like to wake him up yet to dress him for the night. Easton was sitting by the fire, smoking. So, everything being done, Ruth sat down at the table and began sewing. And presently she spoke. I wish you'd let me try to let that back room upstairs. The woman next door has got hers let unfurnished to an elderly woman and her husband for two shillings a week. If we could get someone like that, it would be better than having an empty room in the house. Yeah, we'd always have them messing about down here, cooking and washing and one thing and another, objected Easton. There'd be more trouble than they were worth. Well... "'We might try and furnish it. "'There's Mrs. Crass across the road "'has got two lodges in one room. "'They pay her twelve shillings a week each, "'board, lodging and washing. "'That's one pound four she has coming in regular every week. "'If we could do the same, "'we'd very soon be out of debt.' "'Yeah, well, what's the good of talking? "'You're never able to do the work "'even if we did have the furniture.' "'Oh, the work's nothing,' replied Ruth. "'And as for the furniture,' We've got plenty of spare bedclothes. We could easily manage without a washstand in our room for a bit, so the only thing we really want is a small bedstead and mattress. We could get them very cheap second-hand. Yeah, well, there ought to be a chest of drawers, said Easton, doubtfully. Oh, I don't think so, said Ruth. There's a cupboard in the room, and whoever took it 
will be sure to have a box. Well, if you think you can do the work, I've no objection, said Easton. It'd be a nuisance having a stranger in the way all the time, but well, I suppose we must do something of the sort, or else we'll have to give up the house, take a couple of rooms somewhere, and that'd be worse than having a lodger upstairs. Let's go and have a look at the room, he added, getting up and taking the lamp from the wall. They had to go up two flights of stairs before arriving at the top landing where there were two doors. One was leading into the front room, their bedroom, and the other at the back, empty room. These two doors were at right angles to each other. The wallpaper in the back room was damaged and soiled in several places. "'Yeah, there's nearly a whole roll of this paper on top of the cupboard,' said Ruth. "'You could easily mend all those places. "'We could hang up a few almanacs on the wall, "'and our wash tank could go there by the window. "'A chair just there, and a bed along the wall behind the door. "'It's only a small window, so I can easily manage to make a curtain out of something. "'I'm sure I could make the room look quite nice without spending hardly anything.' "'Easton reached down the roll of paper. "'It was the same pattern as on the wall. "'The latter was a good deal faded, of course, but... It wouldn't matter that much if the patches showed a little. They returned to the kitchen. "'Do you think that you'd know anyone who would take it?' asked Ruth. Easton smoked thoughtfully. Mm, "'No,' he said at length. "'But I'll mention it to one or two of the chaps on the job. They might know someone. "'And I'll get Mrs. Crass to ask her lodgers. Perhaps they might have a friend who would like to live near them. And so it was settled. As the fire was nearly out, it was getting late. They prepared to retire for the night. The baby was still sleeping, so Easton lifted it, cradle and all, and carried it up the starrow, steep staircase to the front bedroom. Ruth led the way, carrying the lamp and some clothes for the child, so the infant might be within easy reach of its mother during the night. Two chairs were arranged close to her sides at the bed, and the cradle was placed on them. "'Now, we forgot the clock,' said Easton, pausing. He was half undressed, and he already removed his slippers. "'I'll slip down and get it,' said Ruth. "'No, never mind, I'll go,' said Easton, beginning to put his slippers on. "'No, no, you get into bed. I've not started undressing yet. I'll get it,' said Ruth, who was already on her way down. "'Well, I don't know as it was worth the trouble of going down.' Ruth returned with the clock. "'It stopped three or four times today.' "'Well, I hope it doesn't stop in the night,' said Easton. "'Be a bit of a all right not knowing what time it was in the morning. "'I suppose the next thing will be that we have to buy a new clock.' Huh. "'He woke several times during the night "'and struck a match to see if it was time to get up yet. "'It was half-past two. The clock was still going.' and he again fell asleep. The next time he woke up, the ticking had ceased, and he wondered what time it was. It was still very dark, but that was nothing to go by, because it was always dark at six now. He was wide awake. It must be nearly time to get up. It would never do to be late. He might even get the sack. He got up and dressed himself, and Ruth was asleep, so he crept quietly downstairs, lit the fire, and heated the tea. When it was ready, he went softly upstairs again. Ruth was still sleeping, so he decided not to disturb her. Returning to the kitchen, he poured out and drank a cup of tea, put on his boots, overcoats and hat, and taking his basket, 
went out of the house. The rain was still falling, and it was very cold and dark. There was no one else in the street. Easton shivered as he walked along, wondering what time it could be. He remembered there was a clock over the front of the jeweller's shop a little way down the main street. When he arrived at this place he found that the clock being so high up he could not see the figures on the face distinctly, because it was still very dark. He stood staring for a few minutes, vainly trying to see what time it was, when suddenly the light of a bull's-eye lantern was flashing into his eyes. "'You're about very early?' said a voice, the owner of which Easton could not see. The light blinded him. "'What time is it?' said Easton. "'I've got to get to work at seven, and our clock stopped during the night.' "'Where are you working?' "'At the cave in Elmore Road, you know, near the old toll-gate.' And what are you doing there? And who are you working for? The policeman demanded. Easton explained. Well, said the constable, it's very strange that you should be wandering about at this hour then, isn't it? It's only about three quarters of an hour's walk from here to Ellsmore Road. And you say you've got to get there at seven. And it's only a quarter to four now. So where do you live then? What's your name? Easton gave his name and address and began repeating the story about the clock having stopped. "'Well, what you say may be all right.' "'Or oh, it may not,' interrupted the policeman. "'And I'm not sure, but that I ought to take you to the station. "'All I know about you is that I find you loitering around outside the shop. "'And what have you got in that basket, then?' "'Only my breakfast,' said Easton, opening the basket and displaying its contents.' "'Well, I'm inclined to believe what you say,' said the policeman, after a pause. "'But just to make sure, I'll go home with you. "'It's on my beat, and I don't want you to run in if you if you know what you say you are, "'but I should advise you to buy a decent clock, or you'll be getting yourself into trouble.' "'When they arrived at the house, Easton opened the door, "'and after making some entries in his notebook, the officer went away.' much to the relief of Easton, who went upstairs, set the hands of the clock right, and started it going again. Then he removed his overcoat, lay down on the bed in his clothes, covered himself with the quilt, and after a while he fell asleep, and when he woke, the clock was still ticking. The time was exactly seven o'clock.